Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. We're our second week in our series entitled Money Matters, and uh, uh, about a seven-week series on biblical stewardship. And we talked about, last week I ended with the, the phrase, there are a lot of books out there that, that teach us and tell us how to, and now websites and podcasts, and a lot of content that tells you how to get re- rich, but there aren't a lot that tell us how to be rich, especially biblically. And uh, we're looking at, at our, our finances, biblical stewardship, and understanding God's plan for our stuff. And, uh, and last week, all of these messages, the title is going to answer a question. Last week, we answered the question, are you rich? Now talk to me based on last week's message, are you rich, yes or no? All right, most of you, even if you don't believe it, at least you're saying it. And uh, we are rich. And we went through an entire message last week and looked at those things. We are rich. And we're going to answer another question this morning. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to, you can go on our our podcast on uh, the different podcast channels, Apple uh, Podcasts and all of those different places, or our church website or archive, or our Facebook page has the video archive. And, uh, And you can go back and see last week's message. 15, approximately 15% of Christ's recorded teachings in the Gospels touch on our stewardship. About 15% of His recorded teachings talk about our stewardship. I'd say it's probably a pretty important topic that we need to understand. And we can try to divorce our faith from our finances. Well, that's the, the, the money part of my life, the business part of my life, my portfolio, my investments, that's that part of my life. And then my relationship with Christ and God, that's, that's that part of my life, my, my spiritual walk. We can try to compartmentalize those things. The only problem is we're not going to be able to do it. Jesus told us where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He said uh, that those two things are intertwined, and we talked about last week that if we have a wrong relationship with our stuff, we will not have a right relationship with our Savior. Uh, If we have a wrong relationship with our finances, our relationship in faith will not be right. And so we're going to look this morning at week number two, and and a little different. A lot of times we'll normally stay in one passage on a Sunday morning and break that passage down. We're actually going to be in three different passages this morning. So I'm going to ask you to turn turn along with us this morning and to see the, the principles of Scripture for yourself. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to look at probably, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 verses today, and I think you'll get more out of the message if you see the words of God for yourself. If you're following along on a phone or an iPad, I'll be reading from the King James Version as we read aloud verses here or there. Where we're going to go to start with, if you'll go to Luke 12, put a marker there, Luke 12, and put a marker there, and then turn back to kind of our text passage for this series, where we're going to be just about every Sunday in this series, 1 Timothy 6. So we're going to start in Luke 12. I'm sorry, we're going to start in 1 Timothy 6, get a marker in Luke 12, and then we're going to turn over, and we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter number 6. This, we said this last week, the, Timothy, uh, the book of First and Second Timothy are what we call the pastoral epistles. These are letters written to Pastor Timothy. This is Paul, a mentor, an older preacher, the missionary evangelist, who is telling the younger pastor some things. 
And he says to the younger pastor, Timothy, you need to teach the people of God on some things. And one of them that we see is on their handling of their material blessings and their material goods. You need to teach them. So Luke 12, put a marker there, 1 Timothy 6. Let's read our text verse where we were last week for our message. 1 Timothy 6, verse number 17. Would you read that aloud with me? Ready? Begin. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So the first thing, charge them that are what, church? Charge them that are rich. So this passage is completely irrelevant and ineffective if that's not us. That's why we started where we started last week, are you rich? And we talked about the fact that, that by historical standards, we're all rich. By worldwide standards today in 2022, we're all rich. And, and I, I know that some of us, we push back on that idea, uh, well, maybe I'm not poor, but I'm not rich enough. We talked about that last week. And what we're saying is maybe in the relative wealth of Orange County or of California or of America, I'm not, I'm not Bill Gates rich. I'm not Jeff Bezos rich. And we kind of, and we talked about that the human mentality, it's funny, Gallup did a poll, everybody views rich as basically about double what they have. They did a poll. People that earned, brought in about 35000 a year thought people that had about 75000 were considered, yeah, that's, that'd be rich. People that brought in 100 said 200. People that made a couple million said about 5 million. It's always this moving target. Whatever we have, it's always something that's a little more out there. That's human nature. We saw all of that last week, but we talked about the fact that we are some of the richest people in the entire history of the world. We live in luxuries and in comfort and in pleasures that kings and presidents of centuries past would not have fathomed today. All of us do. And we talked about last week that if you have a household income of $48,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wealth, wealthy people in the world today. You say, I don't have that. If you have a household income of $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of wealthy people in the world. And we said it last week, a good way to know if you're rich, we said if you've ever stared at a closet full of clothes and said, I just don't have what? Anything to wear. That's a rich people problem. If you've said, I just don't have anything to wear, you're rich. Many people in the world would never have that problem to go to a closet full of clothes and not know what to wear. We said last week, if you can't decide where to go on vacation, you're struggling between two or three different places, that's a rich people problem. My favorite one from last week was, if you pay to keep an animal alive that you are not planning to eat, or to kill for fur at some point and wear it, right, to keep you warm in the winter. If, that, if that's something, and I, that's me, that again is something that would be foreign to many throughout history and to many even in our world today. So we have to admit that th this is talking to us, those that are rich in this world. He says here that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. Last week, I, I challenged you to do three things, to accept the label, we are rich to acknowledge the side effects that can lead, according to this passage, to pride, to misplaced trust, and even to destruction in our lives, and to adjust our hearts. Our message this morning comes from the end of the verse, chapter, uh, verse 17, where it says, nor trust in uncertain riches, here it is, but in the living God, notice this, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. This morning's question is this, who owns that. 
Last week, are you rich? Yes, we are. This week, who owns that? That meaning your life, your schedule, your career, your business, your children, your home, your car, your, your material goods, your bank, the things in your bank account. Who owns it? And we have to answer the owner before we get to any other biblical principles for stewardship of managing our time, our finances, our our families. We must answer the ownership question because when we answer the ownership question, uh, we will solve several major issues in our lives. We're going to get to those three issues that answering this question answers at the end of the message. So the Bible says that we are stewards. What is a steward? A steward is one who manages the properties or the valuables or something of another. That's a steward. A steward is somebody that manages somebody else's property or possessions. It doesn't belong to them, but they have been entrusted with the the ability and the responsibility to care for what does not belong to them. They have ownership. They have oversight of it, even though they don't have ownership of it. If you, if you, there are two Greek words that are used for steward in the New Testament. Both of them carry along this same idea: the manager of a household or of household affairs, to whom the head of the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures. Meaning, somebody says, "Here's my money. I'm going to trust you to spend it right." I'm going to trust you to run, run a tight ship. I'm going to trust you to be a wise investor with my stuff. It's not yours. I'm the owner, but you have oversight. And the Bible says we are stewards of all that we have. And we will give an account to the one who owns it. And to, to try to use maybe some illustrations that we might understand of this idea of a steward. Um, if you have a, a nanny or, a, or someone that comes in on a regular basis, watches your children, or even if you have them in a, in a school, uh, in here at Newport Christian School, what are you doing? You are entrusting the care whose children, now I understand in, in the big picture they're God's children, but humanly speaking, whose children are they? They're your children. They're my children. When you drop them off at Newport Christian School, or you have a nanny that comes over, or, or you have a babysitter, or you drop them off at a preschool, what are you doing? These are the children that, these are my children, and I am giving you the oversight of them for a period of time. What would we think of a nanny that, that, that began to teach things completely, or a teacher or whatever, teach things completely contrary to our philosophy, to what we wanted, to how we wanted our, our family to be raised up? By the way, that's happening in some schools across the country, by the way, that our children are being indoctrinated with things that, that Christians probably would not, should not want their children to know and to be indoctrinated in. We would say, no, you don't get to make those decisions. I gave you instructions for how to care for my child, and I hired you. Yes, I left, and yes, I trusted you to keep them alive and to, to keep them nourished and to take good care of them and to give them a good experience. But no, you can't. Well, we just decided we were going to do all, you know, I just decided I was going to give them a beer, and I just decided that we were going to smoke some, some marijuana together, and I just decided, I thought you'd be okay with that with, my, with your seven-year-old. No, I'm not okay with that. We would think that's crazy. We would never hire that nanny again. Why? Because that's not their decision to make. I've been given that responsibility, and I, and I entrusted them to their care. Same thing can happen in, in construction. I was talking, we had uh, uh, Todd Nadosik, who we have several construction superintendents in our church, and Todd uh, was over at our house last night, and I think there was a football game on or something last night. I'm not sure. Anybody know? Was there a football game? I'm not sure if there was or not. 
and uh, just coincidentally, I wore red and gold today. I don't know why, but, but um, I was talking to Todd. He's a construction superintendent, and I asked him about his, his job, his job site. He's overseeing a $21 million construction project. Well, and I asked him, what are you doing here and there? Well, whose property is that? That's the, 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 the school district's property that he's working on. And whose money is that? That's there. And so Todd doesn't just get to decide, well, I think it'd be cool to put an in-ground swimming pool right here in the middle of the parking lot. No, he's been given responsibility, but it's not his property. It's not his money. He has to be a wise steward and follow the instructions of the owner. A money manager or financial advisor is that. It's not their money. We're entrusting our money to their care and saying, help me to grow this, to make wise decisions with this. Uh, a general manager of a sports team, there's an owner, and then there's the one that oversees the team. And we could continue to go on and on, a property manager or a manager of an apartment complex. What are we doing? We're taking care of somebody else's property or possessions. Leave a marker here in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to come back here for our three final applications, but turn over to Luke in chapter number 12. Luke in chapter number 12. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable, an earthly story with eternal meanings. I preached an entire series several years ago through all of the parables of Christ. Amazing truth in these simple stories. Jesus used some simple illustrations and stories to drive home these powerful eternal truths. So Jesus in Luke 12, he's going to tell a parable about a man who didn't understand the ownership issue. He didn't answer correctly this question, who owns that? Jesus is going to tell us a parable. We call it the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter number 12, verse number 13. Luke 12, verse 13, and one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. By the way, I could preach an entire message on that one verse for all of us. We live in an unbelievably materialistic society, and, and we've been blessed unbelievably in Western culture materially. And Jesus made it very clear here. He said, You're, you're so messed up in your priorities. A man's life isn't the value of a man's life isn't his valuables. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the stuff he has. That's not what really matters in this life. And then he goes on, and he's, he's telling him, You're, you, you don't really understand a proper attitude and view toward money and toward things. And he goes to tell him this parable, this story, to drive home a point. Chapter, uh, verse number 16, I'm sorry. He says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully could describe most of us and, and our investments and, and our, our, our country over the last several generations, several centuries. God blessed, and in America we live in the richest land on the face of the earth. And the stock market over time and housing prices over time have done nothing but over—now they have their bumps and their, their, their peaks and their valleys, but over time they've done nothing but just go straight up. He said a man's, his, his business over time, it just did really well. He says a rich man brought forth plentifully, could describe us. He hit his sales numbers. He got a nice bonus. Now Jesus is making this story up so he can make the man do anything he wants to do. He can, he can make the ending anything that he wants. He can, do, he can craft the story however he wants to teach whatever lesson he's trying to teach this man who has a wrong view of financial things. 
He wanted to teach him the right and wrong ways to view our things and how to respond if we find ourselves with more than we need. So this rich guy does what many of us do when we have good years. Verse number 17. And he thought within himself, he says, Jesus says, this rich man thought within himself, saying, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? I've got more than I need. Hmm, what should I do? And what do we do? You know what I'll do? I'll go rent a, a, a shipping, I mean a storage facility, a storage locker somewhere, and shove a bunch of stuff that I don't need and don't use into this storage facility, and I'll totally forget all about it, and I'll pay them monthly every month to keep my stuff, and by the time I go back there, I'll realize I didn't need any of that anyways, I don't want it, or I'll just leave it there, and they'll make reality TV shows about people that break the locks off of it and get all of my stuff. This is a very American parable. I've got more stuff than I need. What am I going to do with it? And, and storage facilities pop up all over the country. Why? We've got more stuff than we need. And it starts, my wife is telling me, and this is actually a good message for me. She's been telling me, we need to buy another shed. And I said, we're not buying another shed. We need another, I need another shed. I said, no, we need to get rid of stuff. And we, what do we do? We fill up the garage and we, we get cabinets and we get a shed and we get another shed and we build an attic and we build a basement. And what do we do? Why? Because we've got more stuff than we need. We moved down here uh, from Northern California, and, and, and we moved down. I, I filled up a dumpster and a half of stuff, and it still took us two of U-Haul's longest trailers and the trailer behind, and, and a little pull-behind trailer to get our stuff down here. We have more stuff than we need, and you figure that out when it's time to move, don't you? Where did all this stuff come? I didn't buy that. Did you buy that? I didn't buy that. It just magically appeared in our house. The Amazon guy dropped that off, and I didn't even know we ordered it. So what am I going to do? What, what, what's going to happen here? I've got more stuff. Have you ever been there? Maybe at Christmas, your grand, the grandparents brought the kids another toy, and you already opened the overflowing closet. You're like, where are we going to put this? You go to the garage, the extra room in the house, the shed. What can we do with it all? The story continues. Here's what he says in verse 18. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The story continues. I, I know the idea. I know what I'll do. I'll save it. Early retirement. Retirement's right here. I'm going to invest in the future. The government maybe here was even offering a tax write-off to build a bigger storage barn. I don't know. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my storage facility, and I'm going to build a bigger one. And then I'm going to say to myself, I'm going to look at my portfolio and say, you did really well for yourself. Enjoy the rest of your life doing nothing. Man, that's a good life. And you know what we would say? That guy is living 2,000 years ago before it even existed, the American dream. Man, that guy's got—he's living like what all of us are shooting toward, right? Can I get somewhere that I've got enough in the barn that I can stop working and just sit there and do nothing and just say, soul, take it easy. You lived a good life. Enjoy all the fruits of your labor. And so we like this story, don't we? He's industrious. He's planning for retirement like a pro. He had a good year. He maxed out the Roth IRA, put some in a savings account. He maybe diversified in some other things. And we're just waiting, at least I am, for Jesus to say in his story, and he lived happily ever after. Go and do thou likewise. That's what I want to do. Let's see what he says in verse number 20. Verse number 20. Would you read the first phrase, the first seven, eight words up to fool with me? Ready? Begin. But God said unto him, thou fool. Well, that escalated quickly. 
There was a rich man. Business was booming. So good, he tore down his barns and built a bigger one, put all his stuff there. And, and we're like, this guy is my hero. I, I'm going to listen to his podcast. This guy needs to write a book. I want this guy's life. And Jesus telling the story says, but God said unto him, thou fool, you don't understand what really matters. You don't understand why I gave you that stuff. You don't understand the way to use that stuff for my glory. Thou fool, look at the rest of that verse, verse number 20. For this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? You did all of that work for what? For who? Somebody else is going to enjoy all the fruit of your labor. Verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You fool. And we would say, yeah, if the guy was dying that day, that is foolish to put all of that there. And, and then Jesus says, and he turns, and he had a way of doing this with the parables, he turns the mirror and he says, and so is every person that thinks like this guy. Every person that all he thinks about is, how do I lay up for myself and I'm not rich toward God? That is the so is everyone. It takes a pretty dark twist, his parable. The guy dies. What a downer. But you know that got the audience's attention. What is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching if you get a raise, you'll die. That's not what he's teaching. He's teaching, you know, if you, if you rent a storage facility, God hates you. That's not what he's teaching. He's teaching don't save for the future. That's not what he's teaching. In fact, other passages of Scripture tell us that, that it's a wise man that will put some stuff aside for the future, and, and we ought to be people that save and, and invest in God. God's looking for a good investment. What is Jesus teaching? He's teaching about ownership. The man was laying up for himself. He was greedy and covetousness, covetous. He was not managing the money with God or others in mind. It was all about him and his pleasure and his comfort. It was not wrong that he was rich. The Bible says it's God that gives you the power to get wealth. It was not wrong that his business had a good year. That's not sinful. That's not a bad thing. That's nothing to be ashamed of. It was not wrong that he had a barn with some savings for the future. What was wrong was everything was about him and for him. Look at verse number 22. And he said, he turns it to his disciples, he said unto his disciples, therefore, because of what the story I just told you, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. This life matters more than the stuff we have. Look at, skip down for the sake of time, verse number 29, what he says, you can read the rest of it later if you'd like, it's all in context. Verse 29, and seek not ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of what church? Of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. What is he saying? Understand why you've been given what you've been given. It's for God's glory. It's to lay up an eternal treasure. It's to make a difference in the lives of those around you. 
doesn't mean, in fact, in 1 Timothy, it's God that gives us all things richly for us to enjoy. It's not wrong to go out and enjoy a nice meal. It's not wrong to buy a new outfit of clothes. It's not wrong to buy a new car. What, it's not wrong to have stuff. What is wrong is when stuff has us. And he says here, you fool. You thought everything in this life was about how much you could get. He said, but really, disciples, what you need to know, it's about how can you give? How can you make a difference? And please me, I'm the owner, you're the steward. How can you lay up for yourself a treasure? And he says it here, by the way, he says in verse 31, seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things, the earthly material things shall be added unto you. It's not wrong for the earthly things, but what was Jesus teaching? Jesus was teaching his followers here a pretty interesting definition of greed. He said that greed is the assumption that everything placed in our hands is for our consumption. Greed is the assumption that everything placed in our hands is for our consumption. And so now I ask you, who owns that? And it might be our finances we're talking about. It might be your children. It might be your schedule. It might be your career. It might be your home. It might be, it might be your relationship. Who owns that? Every part of your life, who owns that? The 168 hours of life that God gave you last week, who owns that? Did you lay it up for yourself, or did you use it to glorify God and serve others? Who owns it? That paycheck you got last week, did you lay it up for yourself, or did you use it to glorify God and serve others? Those children that God has blessed you with, do you try to train them in ways that will make just you proud and fulfill your dreams, or do you train them to glorify God and serve others? God gave us that money. God gives us the time that we have. The Bible says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. God gives children. The Bible says, children are an heritage of the Lord. They're a gift from God. They're eternal souls that will never die. Yes, we call them, those are my children, but they're really his children that I'm a steward of. Who owns those things? It's all his. The Bible says in Psalm 24, verse number one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It's his. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6 says what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Who owns that? It's not ours. That body is not yours. Deuteronomy chapter number 10, behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. That includes everything we touch on a daily basis. Another passage in Deuteronomy chapter number 8, it says, when thou hast eaten and art full, then shalt thou bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Be thankful for what God's given you. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest, listen to this, when thou hast eaten and are full, great material blessing, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, business is booming, thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, the the 401k is is doing well, and all that thou hast is multiplied. Beware, he says, be careful. 
careful in that time, why? Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee, do good to thee at thy latter end, and thou, here it is, and here's the danger, and thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. God promised them a, a land of great material blessing. God promised them a land with wonder. It wasn't wrong that they built great houses and that they had those things, but he said, be careful when you get there that you think, I did this. Look at my strength. Look at my wisdom. Look at what I did. I'm a self-made man. He said, be careful of those things, because when that happens, you'll forget God, and you'll, you'll forget the one who brought you through the wilderness. You'll forget the one who did that. I was talking to a business owner that's been visiting our church the last couple of months, and, and he said, he said, we were talking about his business, and he made this statement, we've been more lucky than we've been good. You know what he was saying? I realized that a lot of the blessing we have is there were circumstances outside of my control that led to this. I can't take credit for all of this. What is he saying? I realize that it's not all on me. And we need to realize that too, no matter what we have. And be careful when life gets comfortable, it's easy to forget the one who gave us all those blessings. It's not, it's not hard to pray to God when you're standing at the Red Sea. And the world's most powerful army is breathing down your neck, and you're like, this is it. I can't do anything. I can't go to the left, can't go to the right, can't go forward, can't go back. It's over. God, would you please do something? That's not hard to pray then. It's not hard to pray when you're in the wilderness, and all the grocery stores have nothing on the shelves. Anybody sound familiar? <laughs> they had some problems back then too. You're in the wilderness, and there are no grocery stores. And you don't know how you're going to feed your family, and, and you've got a country of a couple million people. God, would you do something? And manna shows up. It's not hard to recognize God in those days. But when you get to Canaan, he brings you out of Egypt. All of a sudden, the struggles are gone a little bit. The blessings there, it can get hard. And all of a sudden, you forget who it is that gave you that power. Who owns that? Benel said, if one first gives himself to the Lord, all other giving is easy. Who owns you? Who owns what you have? Who owns that family? Turn back with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy 6. I want you to see, and this, we'll, we'll, we'll close this up. We're going to turn to one more passage. I want you to see the three issues that the ownership question solves. In 1 Timothy chapter number 6, look at verse number 10. The ownership question, when we answer who owns this, it solves the love issue. It solves the love issue. Look at verse number 10. Would you read? In fact, let's read verse number 10 aloud. Ready? 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, ready? Begin. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Sometimes we get this wrong when we don't understand Scripture, we're not very scripturally uh, knowledgeable, and people will say money is the root of all evil. No. The love of money. My love is toward that stuff what I can get. That's what I'm living for. I'm coveting. I've got to have it. I've got to, it's got to get bigger. It's got to get better. It's got to get, I need more. 
That's the root of all evil. I'll do anything then. I'll, I'll lie, I'll cheat, I'll steal, because it doesn't matter who I hurt, I got to get more. It's not money that's the root of all evil. If that were the case, we would all be pretty evil because we all have money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And look what he says in verse number 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. What? The love of money. Follow after righteousness, godliness. Look at this. Faith. What's that next word? Follow after love, patience, meekness. He says you have a choice. You have a choice. You, 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 you can love one or the other, God or self, his plan or mine, his value system or mine. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter number 6. No man can serve two masters, for he Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't. He's basically saying, you're not going to be able to give everything you have to, if we want to put it as an employee at a company, you can't work all out for this one and then go work for your competitor. But then just in case we might not know exactly which two masters Jesus was talking about, he clarified it for us, for us Bill. Here's what he says, Joe. You cannot love, here it is, you cannot serve God and mammon. Worldly wealth. Both of those are masters. You've got to pick which one you're going to live for. Money should be a servant for us, a tool to help us accomplish our purpose for living, not our purpose for living. Money is a wonderful tool to help us accomplish our purpose for living. It's a terrible purpose for living. Are we going to serve God or mammon? What am I going to, the love issue. Later in the chapter of Matthew 6, from that, that verse we just saw, Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the love issue, follow God, and all these things, stuff, money, shall be added unto you. Get it right. Get the ownership issue right, and it solves the love issue. Here's the paradox. Here's the, the interesting dichotomy. Live for pleasures down here, and you lose out on eternal rewards. Live for eternal rewards, and God abundantly blesses with pleasures down here. Isn't that interesting? When we live and say, all I'm going to live for is the next thing I can have for, for selfish pleasures, we lose out on eternal rewards. But God said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, the earthly pleasures, the earthly needs, the earthly blessings shall be added unto you. Look back, look at verse number 19 of chapter number 6. Look what he says. He's telling them, charge them, verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. What is he saying? Solve the love issue. Be willing to live for God, not self. Tiffany and I celebrate next in just a couple weeks, 22 years of marriage. And I've planned a, a very romantic evening. I'll be coaching our high school basketball team on that night. And uh, 22, she's a, she's a saint. She deserves a crown for putting up with me for 22 years. 22 years of marriage will celebrate what, what happened at the wedding ceremony. It was an official act where we were settling the love issue. I was promising I'm not going to love anyone else like I love you. You are going to, humanly speaking, have first place in my life. Because if I settle the love issue in my marriage, it changes everything about the marriage. If I settle the love issue with in the, that ownership issue, it solves that love issue with God and with my stuff. It changes everything about our Christian walk and journey. She and I committed we would give our hearts to no one else. You cannot have a good marriage until you settle the love issue. You cannot be a good steward until you settle the love issue. Do I love God or myself? Stuff or my Savior? Number two, the ownership issue. The, uh, who owns that? Answering that question solves the love issue. Secondly, it solves the trust issue. I mentioned this last week, so I don't need to hit it for very long. 
Verse number 17, what does he say here in verse 17? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, proud, arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Not, we're not trusting in money. We're trusting the giver of the money. The Bible says some trust in horses, some in chariots. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people put trust in their, the Bible says in Proverbs, Solomon said who he knew something about, about business success. He knew something about amazing wealth. And he said the rich man's wealth is his strong city. He runs into it and is safe. It's how he views he's going to be protected in life. We have to get the trust issue right. I'm not trusting in my riches. I'm trusting in the giver of my riches. And if he decides to take my riches, my trust doesn't waver. I still trust that he can carry me through the, the, the seasons of plenty and the seasons of not so plenty. Are you finding your identity, your security, your sense of purpose and fulfillment in where you work, in what you have, in what you drive, in where you live? If so, you've misplaced your trust. Number three, it solves the giving issue. When we answer who owns that, it solves the giving issue. Look at verse 18. He said, if you'll charge them and they learn to trust in the living God, verse 18, charge them that they do good, that they be rich in good works, not just rich in good stuff, rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, to give of what I've given them. When we get the love issue right and the trust issue right, we will get the giving issue right. Here's our last passage. You've listened well. I'll wrap it up. Would you go to Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 29? Let's turn one more place. I want you to see here, 1 Chronicles chapter number 29. David here in 1 Chronicles chapter number 29 is seeking to lead the Israelites to build a temple for God. I want you to see their heart in this giving issue. Look at 1 Chronicles, and then I want you to see what happens when they get this giving issue right. 1 Chronicles chapter number 29. Let's look at verse number 3. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse number 3. Notice what he says, moreover, because I have set my, here it is, I have set my, what's that word, church? I have set my what? Affection to the house of my God. What did he get right? The love issue. Because my, and David was rich, a wealthy king. I got the love issue right. Because I have set my affection on the house of my God. Because I got the love issue right, notice what he says. For the house of my, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, I have of mine own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, even 3,000 3, talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver to overlay the walls of the houses withal. And uh, uh, notice, aren't you thankful we're not doing gold and silver on the platform remodel? We need a lot more in our capital campaign there. And uh, what does he say here in verse number six? I'm sorry, verse 5, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, for all manner of work to be made by the hands of artificers. And who then is willing, the giving issue, to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? I want you to see this. Giving is not just about only our money. Verse 6, then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and hundreds with the rulers of the king's work offered, what's that next word, church? Willingly, verse 7, and gave for the service of, of God of gold 5,000 talents, 10,000 drams, and of silver 10,000 talents, brass 18,000, 100,000 talents of iron. They with whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord by the hand of Jael the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, notice this, the people rejoiced for that they offered, this word keeps coming up, what? Willingly, because with perfect heart they offered what? 
willingly to the Lord, and David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Verse 10, wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation and said, David said, blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Here it is, the ownership issue, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. This is maybe, I'm going to continue in this passage, this is maybe the most successful capital campaign that any group of of believers has ever had in the history of the world. Some scholars suggest that David may have given as much as $14 billion of his own money in today's value. We're talking about these talents of silver and gold. We're talking about billions of dollars given. And what does David say? And not, not only did they give it willingly, they had, they had solved the giving issue. They had solved the love issue. They had solved the trust issue. But it was because they had already solved, the, they had already answered the ownership question. Thine, O Lord, it's everything that's there is yours. Look at verse, thou art exalted above, as head above all. Verse 12, notice what he says. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand. By the way, David's one of those powerful men on earth at this time. But a man after God's own heart said, it's not about my power, it's about his. Thine hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, O God, we thank Thee and praise Thy glorious name. They didn't say we want credit for what we've given. We're thankful that You let us give. But who am I and what is my people, verse 14, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? God, how would You let us give so well? For all things come of Thee, and of Thine own have we given Thee. Isn't it beautiful? For we are strangers before Thee and sojourners. We are, we're, as were all our fathers, our days on the earth as a shadow, and there is none abiding. It goes so fast. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart. You know why we're giving and how we're giving, and you have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly, there's that word again, offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people. I have seen with joy thy people which are present here. Here's the word again to offer willingly unto thee. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee and give. Lord, would you you do it in another generation? Give unto Saul and my son a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, thy statutes, to do all these things and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. And David said to all the congregation, now bless the Lord your God. And all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed down their heads and worshiped the Lord. It says there, worship the Lord and the king. When you get the ownership issue right, you'll more freely give and bless others. Do you see what happened in this passage? Giving brought joy. I can't believe you'd let us do this. So much joy that we get to build a house of God for the next generation. It brought joy. You you see what it brought? It brought worship. It brought them closer to God. We want to bless the Lord. We want to bless the name of the Lord. What did it do? It allowed them to impact the next generation. And when we get the ownership issue right, the reason they could so willingly give so much was because they got the ownership issue right. 
When I get it right, I'll not find my security in my stuff or my value in my valuables. I'll find my identity in Christ. So now, when I get this right, I'll use my stuff and my valuables to bring glory to Christ and to bless others. I will find unimaginable joy because what does the Bible say? It is more blessed to than to John Wesley said, famous old Methodist preacher, the one who started the Methodist denomination. John Wesley said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if I did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest, it's, lest it find its way into my heart. Some of you are like, I have a husband or wife like that. Money never stays with them either. <laughs> they throw it out all over the place. It burns a hole in their pocket. What is John Wesley saying? I've got to understand the ownership issue because if I'm not careful, what did, what did, what did God say about Solomon? Don't multiply silver and gold. Why? One of the reasons why it'll turn your heart in the wrong way if you're not careful. When we settle the ownership issue, I would be ecstatic if my children chose to give their lives as missionaries overseas. Because you see, if I understand the ownership issue, I'm not losing my children. God is using his children changes things, doesn't it? When I settle the ownership issue, it isn't an inconvenience or a burden to give several hours of my life to church attendance or Christian service or other spiritually minded activities. No, this 168 hours isn't mine and I'm giving him a few hours back. No, it's all his and God, how would, I, how would you want me to use this to bring glory to you and to bless others? When I settle the ownership issue, I'm not deciding how much of my money I will give away. I'm asking God how much of his money he wants me to keep for my needs and I give the rest away. That's when we understand there's nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with investing, nothing wrong with budgeting. They're all biblical principles. I'm not telling you to take a vow of poverty. I'm not telling you to become a monk. I'm not telling you to become a, a homeless person that sells everything. Now, in, in Acts, some of the, they did some of that. that. The Bible doesn't teach that we all need to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying it needs to become a socialist society that is just every—we just put it all in one pot. That, that, that's not what the Bible's teaching. What it's teaching is make sure that your heart towards those things is right. Make sure we understand these issues because then it's not about, well, I have to give this percent to God. No, God gave me 100%. How much do you want me to keep in God? How can you use the rest of it? In our lives, we're to honor God not just with a percentage, but with all that we possess. Not just with a percentage, but with all we possess. And when we understand that, it changes everything. I mentioned John Wesley earlier in that quote. A mightily used preacher in the 1700s, founded the Methodist denomination. One day, a distraught man rode his horse up to John Wesley. He was shouting, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house burned to the ground. Wesley thought about the news. He was quiet for a moment, and he calmly replied, no, the Lord's house burned down. That means one less responsibility for me. Now, that seems a little strange to our, our thinking today, but I think Wesley had a pretty good view of who owns that. Mr. Wesley, your house burned to the ground. No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. I guess that's one less thing he wants me to worry about and spend my time on something else. I understand that, that if my house burned to the ground, I'm not sure that I would respond that way today. But I do think I should strive to view my stuff in that kind of a way. It's not mine. The five eternal souls that God has entrusted to our care, they're not mine. They're in heritage of the Lord. 
He challenged me to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teenagers, that career path, that college choice, it's not yours. Well, I want to do this. I've always wanted to do that. I think if I get that, that seems fun to me. What does God want you to do? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. How is God leading? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. Employee, that job, that career, it's not yours, it's his. Glorify God with it. You and I are stewards. God has, been, has entrusted us with great blessings, and we're responsible to wisely manage that which we've been given. So who, who owns that? When we learn to hold loosely the things of this world, we'll find great freedom, great joy, and great eternal impact. And if you learn, as Jesus said it a couple of different times in the Gospels, we saw it this morning, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm talking about a provision gospel. God promised, keep me first. I'll make sure your needs are met. Who owns that? That, that plan you have for work, that plan you have at home, that place you're, you're thinking about, whatever, whatever it might be, who owns it? Be careful. Charge them that are rich in this world. The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of me is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom and of blessing. You cannot serve. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. We'll find freedom. We'll find joy. We'll find worship. We'll find eternal impact. When like David, we learn to say, it's all yours. You own it. It solves the love issue. I'm going to love him, not my stuff. It solves the trust issue. I'm going to trust in him, not my stuff. And it solves the giving issue. It's not, God, what part of my money do you want back? It's, God, how do you want me to manage your money? How do you want me to manage your schedule? How do you want me to manage your body? How do you want me to manage your children? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.